0: Blaze on Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Michael Pillsbury. Mr. Pillsbury is the director of the Center on Chinese Strategy at the Hudson Institute and has served in presidential administrations from the Nixon and Kissinger years through today. Whereas he writes in his book, his new book, he arguably had more access to China's military and intelligence establishment than any other Westerner. Michael has held senior positions in the Defense Department, as well as staff positions on four U.S. Senate committees, and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the International Institute for Strategic Studies, all of which is to say he's a longtime member of America's diplomatic and national security establishment, which makes it even more remarkable that he has written a momentous book in which he argues that the very establishment from which he came has been completely wrong for decades on China. The name of the book, which is the subject of our interview today— is the 100-Year Marathon, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as the Global Superpower. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael. Thank you. So the first question, with the plethora of issues that America faces today, Islamic supremacism rising in the Middle East a nuclear Iran potentially, and a revanchist Russia, why should Americans care about China?
1: Well, in fact, they shouldn't. The uh, Our public, as you know loves to go to be shocked by beheadings by ISIS or the collapse of the government in Yemen or any one of a number of very dramatic events. So China competes for attention in a way that the Chinese themselves are very pleased. They don't want us to worry about them. And it's hard to make a case in the, in the face of really dramatic, vivid beheadings that we should pay attention to China at all. And that's part of what I call the secret strategy. That's very much what they want. They do not confront us directly. They do not want to pose a threat to us. And they punish any individual Americans who talk about a China threat to the United States.
0: To that end, would it be fair to say that of our enemies, China is really the one exhibiting strategic patience, quote unquote, the phrase that the Obama administration uses to describe their own national security and foreign policy?
1: Well, it depends entirely on what kind of an American you are. There's a lot of Americans who believe in our country. They want, they want to have a, what they call American primacy. They believe we are the best suited to lead the world. It was sort of thrust upon us to do this and that we should. But there's another large group in our country that is very guilt-ridden. They think America should not be the world leader. They think it's okay if China wants to have its own dream and, and lead the world. So what I'm finding in the reaction to my book, these two poles of individual philosophies at work. Some people are really alarmed that China has grown so rapidly from 10% of our economy to surpassing us two months ago. Others think this is a good thing, that gee, we Americans have caused so much trouble and you know we've invaded so many small little countries. It's a good thing for China to take over world leadership. It's, we really have a divided country.
0: What is the conventional wisdom on China in diplomatic and national security circles? And how did you come to see the light that so many others do not, which is that China is actually an enemy and a threat to American hegemony?
1: Well, we don't, I try to avoid calling them an enemy or a direct threat in any near-term sense. What they are is a rival who is out-competing us, outsmarting us, and telling us what we want to believe that we are much smarter than they are, and that we shouldn't worry our pretty little heads about China. And this, I try to blow the whistle on this and say no, from internal Chinese documents back in the 1950s, we can see, we now know, their goal all along has been to surpass us. One of their famous hawks uh, wrote a book on it a few years ago, which really got my attention, saying China's greatest contribution to the human race is to catch up and surpass America. So this is something new. And in the book, I tried to suggest that if we, if we went back, I asked permission of the government, because I didn't control these secret documents. I said, can I please have the old presidential decisions, which began with Jimmy Carter and then Ronald Reagan, on how we should strengthen China, that our strategy is to, to create a strong China and the documents were released, and I refer to them in the book, that that is, has, is still, today, America's official policy. It's not new with Obama. And I argue in, in my book that this is wrong. When they were 10% of our economy, when they were poor, backward, our sort of quasi-allies against the Soviet Union, it was okay to have a tactical alliance with them. But now that there are economic equals and they have not reformed their Communist Party, this policy is a mistake. And I wrote the book to try to say, look at the long-term trends here. If this continues for 20 or 30 more years, people will look back on us in 2030 or 2040 or when the marathon is over in 2049, and they'll say, what did you guys do? How did you? Why did you allow this to happen? And I wanted, at least for myself, to put the facts down in the book for people to read. And if they want China to take over the world, fine. At least they, if they read my book, The 100-Year Marathon, at least they'll make a conscious decision that I want this to happen. If they don't, then I suggest some policies that can slow things down for Chinese ultimate uh, surpassing
0: of us. This marathon plan that you describe, which you write in the book, should end around 2049. That's when China will effectively dominate the world. What is... Explain to Americans sort of the Chinese worldview and their strategic philosophy for achieving these goals because it's devious and we in the West don't think the way that Chinese do about strategy and war. Well, the
1: key thing is the Chinese word that they use for America. It's a word in Chinese pronounced ba, just like ba humbug. And a ba they originally told us means world leader or hegemon. Later on, we found out from some Chinese linguistic experts that Ba was a term from 2,000 years ago that means tyrant. It's a kind of military dictator who, in the Warring States period, 500 B.C. or so, a Ba would rise up and dominate all the other powers. So they were actually saying to us, without our knowing it, you are a tyrant. Their plan is when their economy is double R's or triple R's, they say today, we are going to use virtue, soft power, we're not going to dominate, we're going to harmonize the world, and everybody's going to sort of like this new Chinese leadership because we will have replaced the American tyrant with a friendly, benevolent, virtuous leader in China. Now, if this, I once asked a Chinese general, can you give me an example of a harmonious area where China already is is behaving as you will in the future. He said, sure, easy. Tibet.
0: One of the levers that the Chinese can use is sort of injuring us by proxy. One particular part of your book that I found very interesting was in regard to the Chinese First aiding Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq, and then also aiding the Taliban in Afghanistan, despite the fact that theoretically they were supposed to be allies with the U.S. in the, in the quote-unquote war on terror. Uh, in your view, and based on your research, is there an active relationship between the Chinese government and jihadists, Globally, or is it simply a relationship of China won't sort of deter jihadi activities, China will leave them alone, because in so doing, in effect, they're aiding them?
1: Well, the Chinese deny any such connection. And I tell the story in the book of a number of spies, uh, successful American spies against China, or defectors who came out of China and helped us, and then spies the Chinese used against us. And one of the most famous spies was arrested by the FBI in 2003. She explained that anything that had been done overseas by a Chinese company, like helping the Taliban or in any way wrapped up with Iran or North Korea, that this was a rogue company, just out to make money, and was in no way controlled or suggested by the Chinese leadership. And to this day, this remains a mystery. In other words, they deny helping our opponents, And it's very hard to get direct evidence of it because if it's being done, it's being done quite secretly. It's what I call an intelligence failure of major proportions that we don't fully understand China's intentions toward a number of uh, our own problems. Like, why won't they help us with ISIS? Why won't they help us with really strong sanctions on Iran? Why won't they just tell their only military ally, North Korea, don't produce nuclear weapons instead what they always tell us is we're working with you we support you we'll, we'll help you and then they don't quite do it so as you know it's very difficult to uh, sound the alarm or, or in any way warn against this kind of Chinese behavior because a lot of Americans simply believe the Chinese at face value it's only my 40 years of watching all this that made me quite cynical and especially a few defectors who came out and told us the stories of of how they consciously try to play on our wishful thinking and gullibility. They're really very good at it. I have a sense of admiration for Chinese strategy. They really have the number of the Americans and how to fool them.
0: Another striking element of your book, which I think really relates to that point that you just made about sort of the cunning of China and our inability to see it, and, and you only saw it after multiple decades of watching them up close, is the fact that the Russians as well, and though they don't, they're not a direct parallel because China was sort of an ally in the Cold War as a proxy against the Soviets, but the Soviets as well have practiced long-range strategic subversion. I know you bring up actually Anatoly Golitsyn in your book, who we wrote about last year, and he talked about Russian long-range strategic plans to take down America. Would you describe in terms of China acting weak when they're actually strong and inviting the West in to help build it up? their technology, their economy, etc., really reads a lot like what we did with Russia even post-Cold War. Which of these enemies is superior? I, let's not define them as enemies. Which of these rivals do you view as superior? And do you see that parallel that I just described?
1: I can see the idea of long-term strategic thinking in both Moscow and Beijing, yes. And Golis had, had insights about how the Soviets used deception. Um, The Chinese approach, I think, is more uh, going to have greater consequences for us in the long term. The Russians have really sunk to less than half of their old GDP. They still have the nuclear weapons, but they're they're just kind of a rump state compared to the powerful Soviet Union. In the meantime, the Chinese have doubled their overall strength. I can't uh, convey how clever I think they have been In convincing us, as I sometimes say, like Tom Sawyer, convincing his friends to paint the fence for him, they've convinced us that it's our obligation to help China. And as I say, it remains our national strategy to have a strong, powerful China. And we do this in many concrete, tangible ways that in my recommendations at the end, I said, you know, the Congress really should ask the president to provide an inventory of all the steps we've taken just in the last few years to help China grow stronger, most of these things are not known to the Congress. There's a whole series of programs that every government department in Washington has to implement to help China, and just to have an inventory of what these are in the annual report from the President, I think would be a real eye-opener. A second pr- proposal I make is that we ought to have a national competitiveness report from the president to the Congress, required by law, it lays out this, these are the areas of competitiveness where China is pulling ahead. This is where we're, going, where we're falling behind, the manufacturing effectiveness index. We've plummeted from number one to number ten. And a lot of these indexes, the Chinese are pulling ahead. They now have more patents. Uh, they file for more patent applications in the world than we do. So we may be very cocky about American science, technology, and our innovation, But that's eroding, and I think this should be the topic of a presidential report that Congress requires and dictates what should be in the report. These are some of the recommendations I make at the end of the book, The 100-Year Marathon. Because we're in year 65, it's not over. There's 34 more years to go, so we have a chance to kind of turn things around.
0: Playing devil's advocate on... China's dramatic growth, which as you document in great detail, is, is something that China claimed wouldn't happen. China claimed they were backwards. China claimed their economy was a basket case and they needed all the help they could get. And slowly they've used that to grow their economy to be, I believe, at, at last reporting as large as ours. Playing devil's advocate, though, won't China's central planning and the corruption endemic in their system ultimately undermine their efforts to some degree?
1: Well, that's, I think, a lot of wishful thinking on our part. We look at the Soviet Union and its collapse due to central planning and the Communist Party. We look at Japan, which once had a claim to be on its way to being number one. They were picking winners. They had an industrial policy. And they sort of stopped and have a, had almost stagnant growth now for 15 years. So we can tell ourselves, well, the same thing's going to happen to the Chinese. But there's a lot of evidence that that's not the case. Their growth rate, for example, has been four times as fast as ours, four times as fast for 30 years. Now many people take heart. They say, oh, China has slowed down. It's only 7.5%. That's still triple our growth rate. So the trend is still very dramatic in terms of what's going to happen. And as a frequent visitor to China for the last 30 years, what you see is a very high-quality economic team in Beijing, with people with PhDs from Western economics departments, the largest World Bank staff in the world is in Beijing, and really very, very clever policies where they will target an area like auto parts or steel or chemical paints and use subsidies, uh, various kinds of unfair trade advantages that are banned by the World Trade Organization, and they'll dominate a market share of a new sector sector by sector they do this and yes it's way back in the back pages of the financial times but people don't pay much attention to it so i'm quite bullish on the chinese economy and if they get another 20 years of even double our growth even if they slow down to five percent we're only at 2.5 for 50 years the trend is obvious what's going to happen
0: Their numbers are goosed. They're still probably at some kind of multiple of America's growth rate, I assume.
1: That's all that matters, the relative rate of growth.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the things that I found striking in the book as well was you write a lot about the fact that China doesn't really feel any need. It would sort of be against their strategy to try to build up their armed forces to be significantly bigger than ours, but they do work on developing asymmetric weapons, among them something called Assassin's Mace. What What is Assassin's Mace? What, what weapons does that encompass? And how does that factor into their overall marathon plan?
1: Well, an Assassin's Mace is a concept that comes out of ancient Chinese statecraft. A very good example to think about involves the price of a weapon system and how devastating it is to our best weapons. They developed a a missile for about five million dollars that can reach out a thousand miles from China and sink an aircraft carrier. An aircraft carrier with its jet fighter bombers aboard runs roughly 12 billion dollars now. So a five million dollar missile, even if you have to fire two or three to make sure you sink the carrier, that's 15 million dollars sinks a 13 billion dollar carrier. That's the concept of assassin's mace. And you don't even have to use it. You just have to have the American Navy know if you come close to our coast within 1,000 miles, which is your fighter-bomber range and your Tomahawk missile range, we're going to take out your carrier, or we could. So you deter the Americans from coming close to China. This is all part of the concept. They have quite a few of these weapons now because, in fact, they've learned from the Soviet example. They see the Soviets collapsed in large part because of an enormous military burden. So how to keep the Chinese defense burden low, but have very effective weapons that deter the Americans. This is the assassin's mace concept.
0: One else that I think Americans may not appreciate that you document at Weint in the book is the paranoia of the Chinese leaders, that they believe their own propaganda about the American imperialist and America having this devious strategy to take control of the world from John Tyler's presidency on. Given how keen the Chinese are at observing the world, their intelligence when it comes to spying, and they're even embedding themselves in America today, why Do they see the American mind and the American system in that way? Is it that their own biases and prejudices cloud their own understanding of their enemy?
1: Well, part of the reason is because we have not challenged them on these textbooks. I quote from what you're referring to is some textbooks in China that are approved by the government. And they teach the young generation that America has been out to contain China, since at least President Abraham Lincoln. And they give examples and details that ordinarily the American government would say, hey, you can't stop that. You cannot do that. You're taking our science, technology. We're having all these exchange programs with you. And you're demonizing us to your young people. And we know why you do it. You do it because back in the 1980s, the American model was very attractive. We now know your leaders almost adopted a democratic system of government. But then they they were put under house arrest. Some of your senior officials fled, and we Americans didn't support them. We didn't say, okay, you're an exile government. We'll help you. Instead, we kept hoping that the reforms would continue because you knew all this, you Chinese leaders knew all this, so you demonized us to make sure the young generation in China never gets influenced or is attracted to the American political model again. I call my book for us to confront not I'd say confront, it's too strong, for us to draw this to the attention of our own public and then to the Chinese and say, these are really hateful things you're saying. they're not true. Abraham Lincoln did not try to contain China, and we want you to stop it. If you don't, we're going to stop some of our aid programs to you. But I think most the book are puzzled. they're just unfamiliar with what China's doing in its museum program and its tourist programs and what it's teaching about uh, what I call the, demon, the demonization of the United States. We could make them stop by simply raising it as a public issue inside our own country.
0: Why do you believe that China has made available to you over the years the documents they have?
1: Uh, a lot of what I report in the book, anybody can discover by going into a Chinese bookstore. In other words, these textbooks about American containment beginning with Abraham Lincoln, or the books about the Assassin's Mace program and the need to be able to sink American aircraft carriers, books about space warfare, how to shoot down American satellites in space. All of those are in the bookstores. What is not well known is that our government has very few people uh, who know Chinese who can actually read it, or who have a skeptical outlook. You get a large number of experts on China, like I used to be, who are cheerleaders and boosters for the relationship, and who want to cover up anything which might produce friction. In other words, not translate it. So what you've got is a, a large number of people who are very committed to U.S.-China cooperation, willfully not passing on. The very strong anti-American writings that they know about there's no we used to have a program in the Pentagon, for example, that translated fifty Soviet military books. It was called the Soviet Military Thought Series. You could buy them at the General printing office or you could buy them in bookstores in the United States in China. that was proposed several years ago, and people said no, we don't want to demonize the Chinese by translating their books about how to defeat the United States. So you cannot buy such a book. One was published 15 years ago. With a lot of effort, it was publicly released. It was called Unrestricted Warfare. It shocked a lot of people. But the impression is, well, that was just one time 15 years ago. So I wouldn't say the Chinese have disclosed a lot of secret things to me. Uh, It's more of the initiative that I and others took out of curiosity in the beginning what are you really saying about America? It's part of a program to reduce misperceptions on the Chinese side, but we underestimated how deliberate they are about it. It's not an accidental misperception, and whether they believe it or not, it's hard to it's hard to know for sure. But we really have to call them on it, and we have to alert our own public that hey, this is what they're saying about us.
0: Given your expertise on the Chinese people. And obviously, as an American, your expertise of America and our national defense establishment, is there anything that gives you confidence that America can muster the will and has the capability to ultimately fend off China as a rival?
1: That's an excellent question. I, everybody tells me that uh, I should be more pessimistic, that the, the friends of China, that what I call the cheerleaders for China, are too strong too well-entrenched, and they know if someone like me comes along, they just have to demonize that person or try to undercut their arguments. That's why the book has 70 pages of footnotes. I'm trying to show the actual documents. But I, I'm slightly pessimistic, I would say, that our country historically wakes up with a Pearl Harbor attack or some kind of you know huge disaster takes place. Then in the past, we've always had years to get ready, to mobilize uh, and we had the resilience that could withstand a strong first attack. The Chinese know this. They've actually told me this. So their approach is long-term, slow, and not to seek confrontation or to provoke the rise of the China threat theory. One of the greatest fears is that there will be a rise of a China threat theory group inside the United States. And so far, they've been quite subtle in uh, punishing the critics and Uh, nurturing and even rewarding their friends. So I'm a little bit pessimistic.
0: You've sort of hinted at a few steps that America can take just to start assessing the level of the threat from a China, including doing what the Chinese themselves do, which is measuring their strength versus other nations. Give Americans, our listeners, say three reforms or measures that the government can take that will help to start to turn the tide against the Chinese?
1: Well, there's one set of reforms out of the three I could list that's the most important. You'll notice there are issues like tax reform in our Congress. and Everybody kind of agrees we should have tax reform, but what you end up (laughs) with is 10 different plans and an unwillingness of senators of both parties to actually cooperate and pass tax reform. Tax reforms and there's several other similar issues, that's what slows our growth down. That's why we have 2.5% growth instead of 7 or 8% growth. In fact, it's considered wonderful. I heard Jeb Bush make a speech last week. He thinks it would be great if we could just get to 4%, which most people say probably is impossible. So our own competitiveness is the area where we need to get results and not just people making speeches about competitiveness, but actually having a formula that gets implemented. That's the most important thing. The second set of measures I recommend is we've got to have an inventory of just how much we're helping the Chinese and what leverage we have with them. My fear is our leverage is mostly gone. We've transferred about as much science and technology and export techniques. We've set up business schools in China where we teach them all of our precious techniques of venture capitalism, uh, we've, we've been pretty much squeezed by the Chinese for 30 years. So our leverage is declining. But anything we can do to find out what leverage we have left, I strongly advocate. The third area is our own understanding of Chinese strategy. That's why I wrote this book. That's why I try to focus on the 100-year marathon. We've got to understand and give them credit, even admiration, for just how well they have played our system. (laughs) That in many ways is the hardest just to recognize the problem of Chinese competitiveness before it's too late.
0: The name of the book is The 100-Year Marathon, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as the Global Superpower. And the author who we've been speaking with today is Michael Pillsbury. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at The Blaze Books. You can follow me on Twitter at BH Wine Garden.